and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Koser. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Ready to visit Manchester? I'm very ready to visit Manchester, especially because I am neither dead nor have been turned into an apartment. I can only tell you how pleased I am to hear that about you. What a successful week it must have been. So that means this week we are going to be covering The Condemned. So we are going to be visiting The Sixth Doctor and Charlie. Um, Kev, would you care to give us our summary? Sure. The Sixth Doctor rescues Charlie and she is a little uh, alarmed that it is not her doctor. Uh, having to sort of hide her identity and hiding poorly, uh, the two wind up in Manchester in 2008 where they arrive at the scene of a murder. A man is dead in his apartment in a locked room with no way in or out. As Charlie goes to find help and is summarily kidnapped, the doctor is arrested as his prime suspect. There he meets D.I. Menzies, uh, who is going to be a future sort of recurring ally for the doctor in future stories. But right now, he has to introduce her to the world of aliens, especially the, specifically the secret underground world of aliens living among us in... Uh, the world. The murder victim, George Bailey, it turns out, was murdered by Sam working with Bailey's wife, Antonia. And uh, also, both George and Antonia are aliens known as Shinxes, who have emigrated to Earth and have opened an embassy for other Shinx. Uh, the murder was just uh, in lieu of divorce. And what happened, though, was technology George Bailey was working on has converted Sam and locked his soul tied to the building he committed the crime in. Uh, Sam, not knowing this, helps out Charlie escape from her kidnapper, and as Charlie unravels Mr. Sam, the doctor and Menzies work on unraveling the mystery of the murder and the mysterious uh, Slater, who is sort of a liaison slash mob boss of this alien underworld. Uh, Eventually, all of these worlds collide, as Slater is murdered by Antonia, and... Once all the mysteries are solved, the Doctor has to leave, because he is still the prime suspect. But with a new ally and a new companion, he doesn't quite trust. And that is as bad as I could do describing all of this. No, that's fantastic. There's only a limited amount that you can uh, you can do to describe a story like this. There are a lot of moving parts going on here. And I think one of the... Well, the, really, the two biggest ones are, are, as you say, the introduction of a, a new sort of ally in D.I. Menzies and the in, introduction of a new old companion with uh, Charlie. So let's start with Charlie. How, how did you find Charlie working with the Sixth Doctor? I, I think India Fisher is still fantastic, and I think playing off Colin Baker gives her like another gear to play, especially that time of Girl Who Never Was, which, I, I mean, she, her performance in that show, episode is really great. So I guess maybe you would more accurately say about time of absolution. But yeah, in general, she's been uh, feeling very sort of same old, same old in these stories. And having to sort of play close to a new doctor, but also play very coy and be bad at it is like a new sort of level for the character. And while we don't get a lot of them interacting so much because they're separate for so much of the story, the scenes we get near the beginning and end are very electric with this sort of tension of her trying to uh, not give away the game too much and have the doctor give knowledge he shouldn't have, but also still try to have find some sort of semblance of the rapport she once had with this man she once loved. Yeah, I think that's... I, I sort of agree with all of that, basically. I think it's interesting to have 
Charlie thrown into this situation because I I do think with the best will in the world, as far as Charlie and the Eighth Doctor were concerned, they were tapped out. And I think, honestly, tapped out um, a fair bit before um, The Girl Who Never Was. It's not necessarily a criticism of... uh, India Fisher particularly, but it's just there, there just wasn't really anywhere left to go with that character. Or if, or let's say it a different way, if there was somewhere else to go with it, they, I don't think Big Finish particularly found it. But pairing her off with the Sixth Doctor does give that kind of frisson of, of um, interaction again. There's, there's a spark to Charlie and the Doctor again, um, which you kind of... I think it's only once I see how effective these two are together that you notice how much it was missing in in some of the the latter-day kind of Charlie stories. Um, What's interesting about that is, again, actually, Charlie and the Sixth Doctor don't spend that much time together here. You know, I think they're separate for two full episodes, if I'm right. They basically don't have anything to do together, sort of episode two, episode three, when she's being held captive and all the rest of it. And even given their sort of relatively limited time together, there is still that spark. There is still that sort of frisson of something that that's um, definitely sort of enlivening uh, India Fisher's performance, and it's giving the, the it's giving the Sixth Doctor somewhere to go as well. This is uh, that that thing about a companion that you don't quite trust. I mean, obviously that's building on kind of Turlow and 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 everything that went on with the Fifth Doctor there. I don't think that quite came together. <laughs> I don't think that's a very controversial opinion. I mean, I like Turlow as a character. I like Mark Strix as an actor. But I don't think that aspect of the character necessarily works stunningly well. Um, so it's interesting to revisit the idea of having a companion that the Doctor isn't 100% you know, uh, sure of, somebody he can't completely trust, and trying to build it out from kind of a different direction from that sort of Turlow, I want to kill you kind of more conventional kind of um difficulties that that, that the doctor faced so yeah it's it's great i i I just thoroughly love charlie here yeah and i mean building that companion can't trust the sort of twist is we the audience know we can trust her that she is a she's a great companion and a great foil for the doctor knows her stuff and can really be a help in these situations but because she can't give away that she has experience and and that's why she has to settle on sort of the memory loss thing at the end as sort of a temporary fix to sort of keep this relationship going. Uh, but yeah, the fact that she has to hold the secret as she keeps it off her at arm's length is this sort of like dramatic irony at the core of the relationship. We know that they are a good fit for each other, even if not this doctor inherently. We at least know that Charlie is would be a great companion, but the doctor cannot trust her because she can't reveal everything. Because if she does, then... Uh, I think that's sort of almost what's hinting at her performance at the end, which is such a good final scene from her because she can't, it all has, she can't say anything aloud. So it has to all be inferring things from her performance about saying things like, oh, I've lost my memory and the audience, having trust the audience to make sure, oh, that's obviously a lie. And also sort of infer the reason that she's not revealing the truth is she wants more travels with the doctor and she doesn't want to say goodbye yet. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think one of the one of the big questions which would hang over a story like this, which wants to put a, a sort of later companion with an earlier Doctor, is, you know, at least initially, why doesn't Charlie just say, oh, I used to travel with you before, but it was a different version of you? And the story kind of, it kind of tries to have it both ways, I think, because on the one hand, like, as the audience members, 
we instinctively understand it. We know that she travelled with a later doctor and she's she's meeting an earlier doctor and she can't reveal what's happening for risk of changing the timelines or whatever. We kind of understand that from a kind of outside of the universe perspective. Um, paratextual, that's the word I'm looking for. From a paratextual point of view, we completely understand that. But um, for all the time travelling that Charlie's done and all the time she's spent with the doctor... Um, you know, she trusts the doctor, she loves the doctor, she has confidence that the doctor can basically fix almost anything. So she could have just said, look, this is what happened. I was traveling with another version of you, blah, 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 here we go. But she doesn't, she immediately goes for the lie. Um, and, and it's passed off as that she wants to keep having adventures, she wants to keep traveling with the doctor. But of course, as you say, there's a dramatic irony at the heart of it, and we know at some point that's going to come to a head, that that coming to a head is something that we'll deal with doubtless later down the line. Um, but I think it's an interesting way the story tries to play with the idea that, that Charlie is being deceitful to the Doctor, but it's not it's not as straightforward as she should have done this, she should have done that. And I, I, I like that kind of division of, of reason behind her. Yeah, and it's a good sort of like division. It's a very dramatically compelling division. And we definitely, like, it's a good question to sort of weigh on your mind, but you definitely see in those scenes from Charlie's on her own that she is adept at this. She has done it so much with the Eighth Doctor. She can figure her way out of situations. She can, like, interface with people like Sam and sort of take him at his sort of face value and not be too shocked and be able to talk him down from things because she is used to the unusual and strange. And, yeah, I just... But I also love all the little hints of that she can't quite keep the lie going because of things like, I, they, they cite it a couple of times, but the operator sort of slip up, where sort of that gives Colin Baker's doctor the sort of hint that she uh, is not from, is from a certain time period and a certain place. And that, I just love the little details like that, where he is sort of figuring her out faster than sort of she can keep up with it. And we eventually reach the sort of uh, delay point where she takes amnesia. But, and that seems to explain a lot of it, but then you saw that tension that's going to sort of carry them throughout the rest of the run. Well, absolutely. And and the way that um, India Fisher plays it, which is just slightly, just slightly, not even bigger than Charlie is, but that's just slightly off of center performance that she gives when she has to sort of pick those moments does allow like enough space in the performance that we, you know, of course, obviously as the audience, we understand what's going on, but at the same time, it, it, it lets the performance have that space whereby we understand that this isn't, you know, this isn't Charlie as, as is it's, it's this version who's desperately trying to keep the lie going. I think there's a couple of times where maybe ever so slightly um, heavy handed with that. But at the same time, you kind of, you need to have those little slip ups. There has to be something credible that the doctor will come to understand, um, you know, that, that, that will allow him the space to question who she is or, or what she's doing. I think, like, very broadly speaking, they, they, they get much more right that, with that than they, they do wrong. The, the operator thing, I think, is leaned on just one many times too often. I think, like, the first time we get it, and then it, I think it comes back either once or twice again. Um, and it's just it's just ever so slightly too much, but it's not it's not really a detriment in any way. Um, and the other couple of hints that we get from Charlie, sort of throughout the other um, remaining episodes, they, they they all kind of come together. 
and particularly once it gets to the amnesia, which is just laughable. You know, nobody, nobody for a second is buying this. Least of all the doctor. Uh, it, it's just okay. Fine. This this gives us more than enough to build on on, on stories going forward. So yeah, it, it it basically just all works. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It does. It just works very well, and. Yeah, I, I think what we get in the relationship in a sort of limited capacity in this story is so fun. I think the very prickly doctor is such a good rub against Charlie, who's used to a very loving and open and empathetic doctor. And it throws her for a loop in a good way. But also, there's such a good match because Charlie is also kind of a prickly person. And yeah, I, really, I love this sort of run of stories with Six and Charlie because I think they are such a good match for each other, even if like sort of fate gets in the way of meaning they can't really fully be friends but they would be such good friends in such a different way well yeah and i think i think this is something that you mentioned in the last episode we did but um i really uh i by, sorry the last um it doctor story I, I, absolution um but um i really like the idea that they don't ever resolve this the the the, the doctor this doctor um is 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 left with this version of charlie uh, and the Eighth Doctor never discovers what happens to Charlie. And I really like the fact that they never close that loop. You know, one of the things that Big Finish is so guilty of uh, in its sort of, its less good moments or its more indulgent moments is the idea that, like, you know, every single point has to be addressed. Every every sort of loop has to be closed. Every, every you know, T has to be crossed. Every I has to be dotted. And this is never resolved, or at least not at the point we're we're recording it hasn't been, which is years and years after this was released. So, I like that. I like the fact that the story is allowed to have messiness to it. It's not a clean thing. It's not tidied up at the end. There isn't a, a little bow on it. There isn't a final line. I just, I, I really, I just really like that. I and I think that Charlie is such a good character to do that with because she's out of time, because we've had all the stuff. The Divergent Universe wasn't great, but we understand the significance that Charlie's playing. She's been involved in these kind of um, capital B, capital T, big time events, you know. Um, and so it makes sense that her her story isn't going to be linear. It's not going to be tidy. There's going to be this messiness about it. And this is the start of kind of the second phase of, of the way that she is messy. And like I say, I, I think everybody seems to be inspired by this. Colin Baker is given a really strong performance. This is the best. I mean, India Fisher was really good in, um, in The Girl Who Never Was. Um, but this still feels like a step up in her performance. Um, there's just there's so much going on here. And that it's, it's just it's very invigorating to listen to, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think India Fisher does such a good job in this story, and I think her scenes against William Ash as Sam I've mentioned are really good. She's such a good job against Maxine, but played by Sarah DeFritas. Hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it really her sort of, that combination of her being personable with people, while also can be a little like prickly. Like I think it's such a good combination she has. I think this really leans into what makes Charlie work in a way that very few other stories have sort of gotten the handle on. But it's really sort of both sides of the character that really come out here. Well, absolutely. And sort of um, the idea that Charlie has that many sides, like two sides, that it, it's like such a simple thing. But like, like I said before, the character has felt a bit tapped out. So now that we've got this extra dimension you can kind of see the value in India Fisher. You can see the value in Charlie as a, an ongoing kind of companion. Um, and, and it's just, 
it's just great. And and what we have against that as well, of course, is the contrast of D.I. Menzies as well, who's who's very much like we know what Charlie is. We are so familiar with her over the whatever it is, two dozen stories or whatever we've had with her so far. We have D.I. Menzies, a newcomer, as a contrast to that. And she's very much brought in, I think, to the story as that kind of classic companion setup. You know, she becomes embroiled in the Doctor's story. She's skeptical about it, but she's 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 a very pragmatic person, so she comes she comes around relatively quickly. Um, she's a really fantastic character, but also a complete contrast to Charlie, who's who can kind of confidently deal with the idea that she's got a you know a, a living building or or you know alien ambassadors on Earth and 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 alien gangsters or whatever it is. All this kind of stuff is in her stride. Di Menzies is coming up against it first time, and I think I really like the way that um, the story kind of contrasts their approach because that thing about Charlie being separated from the Doctor for a couple of episodes just lets her get on with all the kind of working out what's going on. So she's the one that's taken hostage and chained to the bed and has to explore the basement and all that kind of... It's kind of... That's very much kind of like the slightly doctory side of roles. And Diamenzies is off to the other side. She's doing kind of the much more traditional companion sort of stuff. So we get a nice contrast there between... Um, the way that Charlie works cause, and all her kind of doctorish experience is coming out and the way that D.I. Menzies works, which is like that traditional kind of introduction to the world of the Doctor. And obviously D.I. Menzies doesn't become a companion that travels with the Doctor at this stage, but she's still going through those motions. And then sort of, if you have those two in sort of in parallel with each other, then you kind of have the Doctor in the middle who eventually just gets on with solving the plot at, at the relevant moment. So yeah, no, I, I really like the balance between all those three characters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's just a good time to talk about D.I. Menzies, because I think she is... I mean, to start off, I'm a huge fan of her. I think she is one of my favorite Big Finish characters, possibly the favorite if you don't count companions or, like, really long-recurring characters. But in terms of, like, these short-term recurring characters who would pop up from time to time, I think she is one of their best creations. She's such a good foil for the Doctor. It's a character you don't need to see before. Like, you mentioned she goes through sort of the companion arc of learning about aliens and being introduced to the world and having to adjust to it. But what's such like a good character, though, like right from the moment, she's like jumping back very quickly. She has a very human reaction of startled and like alarmed and <laughs> confused at first, but it's all very couched in this, like what eventually overrides it as this drive to like solve a murder and to sort of do her job. And I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of cops in real life, but I think, uh, as terms of an idealized, fictionalized version of one, I think it's a character that works very well. I like, I would just like how grounded she is and how unflappable she is. And personality-wise, she's also such a good match for the Sixth Doctor. Well, absolutely, and it's that groundedness which really helps the character to kind of come alive because the idea of putting a character... Like, there's something slightly... Um, I don't want to say soap opera about D.I. Menzies. That's not quite right. But there is a real... So like, again, I've, I've mentioned The Bill a few times in, in this podcast, which is a, a cop show, like, basically a cop soap opera. It's, it's, it's off the air now, but it ran for like 25 years or 30 years or something in, in, in the UK. And they would have these kind of characters. It's that very kind of stoic, just deal with what's in front of you, like, like you're itself i am also not a big fan of the police as very very mildly stated there um but this character kind of 
I think owes more to the tradition of kind of like the cop show or something like that than it does to anybody who would. I, I actually have friends who are, are police officers in real life, and they're, they're vividly aware of how I refer to them. So uh, fascist pig filth, and um, and that this isn't somebody that comes from that. This is somebody who definitely comes from that kind of like that TV cop show. You know that kind of the bill in in the UK or. I'm trying to think of an American equivalent. It's not like CSI or something like that, or I probably I don't know, maybe something like going back a long way, but like Hill Street Blues, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's that's, that's an excellent choice, actually. Yeah, Hill Street Blues is a perfect example. Uh, it's it's that kind of character. They're not. I, I know both Hill Street Blues and indeed the Bill for a period of time were were sort of known for kind of their realism and their and and how how much of real. But but watching them back now. I don't know how much of that has has sustained, but Dia Menzies comes from, from that tradition, and so because she comes from a tradition, a policing tradition, which is more kind of rooted in storytelling rather than reality, I think this character kind of gets away with fitting in to the world of the Doctor. I think we'll probably come back to this conversation again when we start talking about Yaz in in um, in the Thirteenth Doctor's era. Um, she she functions definitely in a different way to the way that Di Menzies functions here. But I I like the fact that because she comes from that sort of more storytelling tradition, it's easier for her to fit in. And that that kind of that kind of flat acceptance of what's in front of her, the idea that she's just presented with evidence and so therefore accepts it, rather than the oh my god, how can it be aliens? Da, 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 and then eventually comes round. That's really nice. We don't get that a lot with companions. That just like, okay, I understand what's in front of me. That's what it is. Now I'm going to deal with it. And that kind of that kind of flat reality is such a contrast, and it works so well against kind of, especially against the sixth Doctor's kind of bombast and and sort of, you know, wildly unconv- unconvincing lying when he's you know trying to get out of of being the prime suspect or whatever, and all that kind of stuff is just she she's just so great for that. Yeah, it's such a fantastic character because. She adjusts, she adjusts so quickly, and it, everything is filtered through her perspective. Like, she just wants to get her job done and to uh, make things sort of safer and, like, get her man. And eat, no matter how much crazier stuff they keep throwing at her, it just always gets filtered through that perspective. And that, plus, like, the very dry wit and a brilliant performance by Anna Hope, who just never sort of lets... She's always sort of stays locked into this sort of uh, viewpoint and emotional sort of range, which is this very dry, very low voice monotone that is just so funny and so like sparkling in a sort of counterintuitive way. I, I think she's such a good match for Colin Baker in every sort of scene where he bombasts and over explains and talks so much. She just has like such cutting little bits of dialogue. And yeah, they're such a good pair. Well, yeah, she, she's very droll. I think that's the word that I would I would yeah. choose to describe her. And and that just that does just fit because it's again it's it's such a contrast to both uh, the Doctor and and Charlie here. And I suppose we should mention that this isn't her first kind of um, Doctor Who appearance. Uh, you know, she was uh, novice Haim on on TV, so she was a cat nun. Um, which is, you know, not something that everybody can say they they, they have on their CV. Um, yeah, uh, but that was, um, wow, I want to say a year before this, or maybe a year and a half before this. She was she was did New Earth, and then uh, then came to Big Finish. A, a very different performance. Um, and I I completely agree with you. I think she's amazing in this. She's just so 
great that kind of that kind of flat stoic delivery which i think i think it would be an easy character to kind of slightly overplay i think you could do this sort of i would say like a, a, a bit of a plod a kind of a bit of a you know a bit a bit slow but i, I really love the way that hannah and hope is able to kind of give that you know she is very droll she's very flat in the way that she delivers stuff but but she's she, the character still comes across as really smart because of it you know the fact that she accepts what's in front of her doesn't make her you know dull or 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 credulous or anything else it's just like no i understand this this is the evidence so this is the conclusion i'm going to draw for it and i think a lot of that intelligence that lies behind di men's is really kind of comes out of the way that anna hope performs the character i think yeah i do think it would be very easy to kind of miss that in this character and it, it's only really you know a credit to her skill as an actor that she's able to land all that stuff so well yeah everything about the character feels so natural it's such an immediately winning performance and i mean it could it could have been such a frustrating character too but a lot of this goes to then the writer eddie robson who really has her ally with the Doctor to be on his side very quickly instead of having, like, say, a whole episode where he's in the precinct and having to win people over. She is such... Uh, the character is such, like, a receptacle for new information. She's not closed-minded at all. She's just very matter-of-fact. So... <laughs> and I think that's what makes her work so well with the Doctor. And, yeah, I... It's just such, like, a... Again such like a great presence for the story with with charlie sort of in her own story for most of the uh story i'm saying that word a lot <laughs> but uh, uh menzies and the doctor have to play off each other so well and they do it so well it's such like a well calibrated character and you do wish that she would travel with the doctor but i almost think having her be rooted in manchester and staying there makes those i mean I have nothing so much to spoil to say that she only has like three stories plus one appearance in that Legacy of Time box set, which we very briefly touched on. But we're only going to be seeing her really uh, in like a full story, actually living up to her potential two more times. And each of those makes it such a special appearance because I think the character works so well because she is A, rooted in this sort of setting, and also B, because it's almost so infrequent. It makes every appearance have its own special flavor to it. No, I think that's absolutely correct, and I think I think you absolutely nailed the description there. Uh, sort of matter of fact, but not closed minded, is is a perfect description of of the character. And I, I mean, I think it's interesting that so far we've been talking for sort of like twenty five odd minutes, and so far all we've really done is talk about the characters, and it's because they come across so well. There, there's there's such a vividness to the way that these characters are are sort of written throughout the play um and we have the other characters here the the i don't think there's any anyone that comes across badly here i think everybody feels fully rounded i think this is a very strong cast that we have here um and one who know how to pitch the story exactly as it should be like even like the sort of cliche role of like the 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 um the sergeant that's in charge of di menzies you know telling her to take a few days off or or you know enforced holidays kind of like these are all kind of like the traditional trappings again of a cop show or something like that but just having them being delivered by somebody who actually invest something in them more than the usual kind of cigar chomping cliches or whatever makes such a difference and it's it, they're only small details they're not all like bit like that that's not a big character but it's enough that it 
lets us feel out the structure of what lies behind the Iomenses without having to spend a lot of time in exposition. And of course, I mean, that's the advantage in having something like, you know, you have a, a cop in a, in a sort of traditional sort of setup or something. Like that. You don't need to spend a lot of time in exposition. There's not that necessity to explain the situation. It's going to be something that everybody's familiar with. But we get a little bit of... Um, you know, exposure to it through her boss or through the guy that works in the morgue or, or whatever it is. And all these characters, they feel like real people. And I, I, you know, even when they were only given, you know, like a dozen lines or something, the morgue attendant gets almost no time, but he still feels like a real person. And it's because I think the quality of the performances across all of this play are, are sort of really able to, to bring that across. This is one of the sort of best cast plays I think we've listened to in a very long time. Yeah. You cited uh, DC Eternal. I just want to shout out Stephen Aintree, who is like has basically like two scenes. I mean, yeah, playing some other extra characters throughout. But as Turnbull, two scenes, and they are so funny scenes, and such, they're electric scenes. It's like such a great performance of him just like playing exasperated to a hilt about the insanity of what's going on, and really bringing reality down, but not in like an unfun or uncomfortable way, but in like a very honest, why is the doctor running around and suddenly leading the investigation kind of way. And then the story is also why it's then sideline him for most of it and have him show up again only like near the end-ish. And but yeah, it's it's such a fun. I, I, scene I should say in. sorry. I hate I, I hate to interrupt. Stephen Entry has been in the bill, so I feel very justified in my connection there. Yeah. So uh, yeah, sorry. Do do carry on. Well, that's a great comparison. That's probably why he learned how to do this kind of performance so well. Exactly, it's such a exactly. Great, uh, like blustering captain performance, and he, yeah, it's like every part in this is so well calibrated. Every character, I think, gets just the right amount of sort of airtime to really sort of explore their deals and then go out. And some of them, like Sam, like Slater, have like a significant amount of time to really explore them. And some like uh, Turnbull just sort of show up, shout a lot, and then have to leave. And it's it's still such a great use. It's still such a well-drawn character. It's still such a fun presence. And so, yeah, everyone, I think, has enough deals going on that it's such a really well-rounded cast. Well, absolutely. And just the way, the way that they're able to all bounce off each other just makes the whole story come alive. But sort of before, before we have to at some point discuss the actual story. So I'm, I realise this is, I'm just slamming on the handbrake now. We can come back to stuff, but I want to talk about the story now because I'm really curious to get your thoughts on what you think about the idea of somebody being integrated with a block of flats and, and that being kind of the, one of the major kind of character drives behind the whole piece. Oh, yeah, that part of the story, I really think it's interesting. It's a very interesting thing. Um, I think I guess there's one, it's not a complaint with the story because I really love the story, but it is difficult to sort of juggle all these elements. You have Sammy integrated the building, you have the alien underworld, and you have the mystery itself. And these three sort of things that are all connected in very smart ways, especially as they really tie together in the last episode. But still, uh, keeping them all, track of them all, is a little bit confusing in this sort of early going. But yeah, I think the Sam, I think the twist is a little telegraphed early on. Again, I can't I don't know how much is this having listened to it before. Maybe that probably helped me pick up faster than I did the first time. I can't remember how quick I picked up on it the first time. But once you have things like characters point out, oh, this telephone doesn't work, and yet here it is ringing. Oh, this lift doesn't work, and here it is moving. You can sort of figure out 
that it's the will of Sam and that he has some sort of special thing going on with him. And so the reveal, but the reveal that he is the building, still, even when I either saw it coming or remembered it or whatever, it still hits pretty hard because it's rooted in this character. It is a horrifying revelation for any character to have. I think it's so smart for him to not know himself and to sort of have this sort of, and this very Doctor Who moment of sort of talking a character down through empathy rather than uh, shooting lasers at them. I think it's such a good sort of resolution to that side of the story to have this connection with Charlie formed early on and have that be the thorough line for it. Well, you know, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I want to sort of say that one of the things I like about the resolution to that story is that it's not resolved. Like, by the end of the story, like, the Doctor doesn't know how long he's going to live for, whether the integration with the building, you know, will he be able to survive the building being demolished, all that kind of stuff. And so, I, 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 again, it's, I, I, it's, I'm coming back to that word messiness again, but I like the fact that this isn't a, a cleanly wrapped up story by the end. You know, D.I. Menzies is left with questions. We have questions about the sentient building. We have questions about Charlie and the Doctor. And, and nothing is, is sort of clean and just sort of tied on a bow. And, and the way that that plot resolves, I, I agree with you. I think it's a bit messy um, and sometimes too messy. Um, there's, there's a slight lack of clarity and, and, and things get a bit muddled. But I think overall, I, I just I do really love the fact that even whether it's plot or whether it's characters, that the, the play resists the temptation to go for what could be, I think, easy or cheap resolutions. And when we find out that this process is irreversible, that kind of, does give an extra jolt to the play because it's not then clear exactly what the Doctor is ever going to be able to do about this. And that's not that common a position, especially for the Sixth Doctor. It's not that common for him to be put in that position when, you know, as far as Big Finish stories are concerned. So I I, 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 I like the jolts and I like the way that it... Um, I don't, I don't know that... I, I like. The fact that the whole building thing, that's definitely sold to us as a twist. That's definitely now the da-da-da kind of moment. And you're right, I, I, it is telegraphed, it's fine, so it's not like it's coming out of nowhere. I think the kind of the other plot beats um, aren't really delivered as twists, but I, I, I kind of like that as well. I think they have the confidence to allow them to stand on their own, let's say it that way. I mean, you're talking about how the story is messy. It's also almost too clean that at the end when all three of these manage to sort of connect and tie up together. Yeah, I think especially the Slater story is like seeded throughout, at least starting in episode two, but like this sort of mob boss of an alien underworld, uh, it's just so underdeveloped. And I mean, you get he has a connection to sort of George Bailey and why this sort of happened with Sam and how everything happened. I mean, at least the vaguest sense of it. But I really think I mean almost this is about a year before Big Finish would start doing these things in uh, trilogies where you would have, they would publish three stories in a row with one Doctor and Companion set, each with a link that is either direct or loose between them. And I almost feel like you could do a whole trilogy starting with The Condemned and then just have it in Manchester with The Six and Charlie and Menzies sort of unraveling a much larger mystery. Instead, things have to get very cleanly wrapped up to the end of this one. And it's almost frustrating because there's so much more you can do with that Slater character and that idea of an underworld of like all the wheelings and dealings behind it. And instead he has to get shot in an elevator at the end very abruptly <laughs> and <laughs> to sort of tie that off. And you don't get much resolution for Dr. Aldrich. You don't get uh, Antonia sort of has a resolution as she's arrested for that crime. But yeah, 
And like, I, I like the lack of originality of something like Sam, but there's definitely a lot of things unexplored, at least with that sort of prong of the story. So even with the mystery of George Bailey sort of resolved, it definitely, there's so much more we could be doing with this. And it is actually a bit of a bummer that even if Menzies has showed up, it's been a very disconnected story from this one. We don't really have any more follow-up on these specific elements introduced here. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And um, I, I think it's one of those things that I I th- definitely remember the first time that I listened to this, which is it's probably not contemporaneous with its release. It's maybe a year or two later. Um, but I do remember thinking that everything you said is true. But I think it also felt like it was kind of trying to set something up a little bit, um, and that this might be something that we come back to explore in a in a future story. And we know Diamandis is going to be back, um, but we're not really going to do anything with this kind of alien underworld and and, and whatever. And that's a bit of a shame. Um, but I think this story. If I'm looking for like an optimistic interpretation of that, I think this story is trying hard to kind of set something up that other writers could then pick up on and run with, whether whether it's going to be the same person, whether it's going to be the same characters, whatever it happens to be. Um, I don't know. And it, in a way, it reminds me a little bit of The Forge. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, no. um, it's the same idea that, that you're getting set up and this is going to be like the first chapter. So we don't need to have everything explained here, but okay, we get the idea. There are ambassadors on earth. There's an underclass that we don't know about. There's a doctor who's um, working away, trying to help these people or, or whatever it is. That's good. I think there's some good, interesting material there. The problem is that it's never followed up on, that we don't get anything else coming out of that. But I don't know that that's exactly the fault of this story you're right i mean this is a not a particularly long i think this is an hour and a half long if i remember correctly um and looking at it from where we are in our perspective in 2020 when we're recording this we think oh well like maybe we could have had an extra half hour and we could have explored some of this alien underworld or we could have explored you know the doctor's relationship with uh di menzies in a bit more detail or we could have had uh more about the alien background and why these people are on earth or whatever it is it doesn't matter um and we don't have that so from our perspective that seems a little frustrating but i think if i sort of push myself back into that space around sort of um you know 2007 or whenever it was that it was released 2008 um i don't think that's how it would be felt it's just like all right we've got some cool setup here just like the forge it seems like a cool setup okay the forge was not cool in any way shape or form that fell apart very very quickly indeed but it's the same idea it's just that 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 sense that that we're getting the beginning of a story not the whole story the only problem is we never get the rest of it yeah big finish has this problem a lot and i just i wonder if that's just sort of the nature of like just having to pitch stories and like writers having their own ideas and just uh you you can't if no one has a good idea for a follow-up you just can't follow it up but yeah this would happen with the forge this happens with the galliari which yeah like a great alien race that appears in two stories by Simon forward and no one else picks up that torch and it's kind of bummer it's a fantastic idea for an alien race uh, there's definitely more examples that aren't coming immediately to mind but yeah, there is so much you can do with sort of seeds planted here. And I almost sort of wish for the version where uh, Slater gets away in the end and you then have another story reckoning with him because he is such a fantastic and fascinating character that I feel like we don't get enough with. But 
uh, what we have is what we have, and it's a very hastily resolved, not unsatisfyingly, but hastily resolved story. And, yeah, I just think uh, we have what we have, and what we have is still a pretty good story on its own terms. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I haven't really shouted out James George yet, but um, I should I, I should just add to it really to what you said, which is that I think he gives a very good performance here. I think Slater is a very credible character. Um, and, yeah, it, it's somebody that we could spend more time with. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I mean, James George hasn't done a, a vast amount for Big Finish. He's done like half a dozen stories or something like that. But he's he's very compelling in this. And, um, yeah, it's just a shame that we're not really going to we're gonna spend any more time with that character. Yeah, uh, we've talked about two of the story outlines a lot. I guess we haven't really talked about the initial one, which is the murder of George Bailey. I guess it's because it's kind of uh, very procedural and not a lot of exciting things to discuss. Uh, I mean, I, I do like the fact that it's, it's a very well-ordered sort of mystery. Uh, the Doctor and Menzies, they're following up on clues. One clue leads to the next, and it's a compellingly strung-together story. And it doesn't need this sort of Poirot parlor room twist reveal. I, I suppose it is sort of revealed that his wife killed him, but for mundane reasons. But by that point, the story has moved on to other things, other concerns. So it is not as pressing. And I, I like that, though, how it's constructed, how it is this sort of very linear, very well-worn sort of cop drama structure. And I think that works to its benefit. And it does, it's also very much in a line where this mystery unveils things much bigger than it. So even when we do get a resolution, it's just part of a larger puzzle that is then sort of solved. Well, procedure, procedural is exactly the right word for the, the, the resolution to the murder story. That's it is. It's, it's, it's uh, procedural. It's, it's this week's adventure. And next week, the Menzies will be off, I don't know, investigating a, a break-in in Walsall or something. You know, that's, that's how these things go. Um, and, and gradually as the story gets on, the sort of procedural elements of it kind of fade away on a sort of downward path and the kind of sci-fi elements kind of fade in on an upward path. Um, that's fine, but I think, I think the structure is quite, quite elegant. The, the fact that the murder is done for such kind of standard kind of cop show motives, I almost... I kind of like the cheek of that to be yeah. honest it's not a big kind of sci-fi twist it's just it's just you know yeah that's the kind of murder that you would get in any kind of you know cop show or procedural and that's that's fine uh, it's it's I can understand why some people might think that that's slightly unsatisfying or maybe a little bit too easy but that's what that part of the story has always been the murder looks like it's going to be part of the big kind of sci-fi plot, but actually it's not. That's that's just the day-to-day life that, that, that people uh, like, you know, DCI Turnbull and, and D.I. Menzies have to get on with. That's that's their bread and butter. That's their day-to-day existence. And not everything has to be tied to a, an alien conspiracy or, or, you know, aliens hiding amongst us or pod people or whatever it happens to be, you know. And, I, I yeah, I, I, I kind of like the audacity of that in a way. Yeah, it's... It's just not, it's a very clean resolution, and I think it's a very appropriate one. And like I said, because we don't want a much more convoluted resolution, because by that point, a sort of Sam stuff has really taken over the story. Yeah. And appropriately, because that is, it turns out, sort of the emotional uh, heavy point of the story, the em- emotional thing it turns around, much more than any sort of procedural murder case. And so I like that it's just simple but effective motivation. And What's much more important is Antonio's relationship with Sam and then Charlie's relationship with Sam and his relationship with how coming to terms with who he's turned into. And like I said, it all comes to a head 
almost a little too fast and too clean, but it, I mean, it is satisfying. I think all of these are resolved in a very satisfying way. Yeah, I think satisfying is actually a very good way of kind of summing up this, this sort of story because um, there's just, there is something just tremendously enjoyable about it. And it is that kind of uh, enjoy, I'm going to say enjoyability. That's not a word, JG. Um, I was, it, it's that enjoyable aspect that you get from a procedural, you know, pe- people use the word procedural very kind of pejoratively. Say, well, we've discussed it before, but the same way that when people describe something as being very like a soap opera, it generally meant pejoratively. Um, but I don't think that having something as a pre- procedural has to be pejorative if it's well written. You know, Columbo is a procedural, but there's some great stuff in there. And, it, you know, it can be a really engaging, fantastic show with a, a great kind of central performance. Procedural doesn't have to mean kind of bland or predictable or, or obvious. And I think that sort of overall is what this play does such a good job of. It's taking familiar elements, the sci-fi element, the police element, the character conflict, all these kind of things. None of them are necessarily unique or original in their own uh, in their own right. Well, maybe the conflict with the Doctor and Charlie is because we haven't really had a companion that's done that skip from a, an existing Doctor to a previous Doctor before. But sort of other than that, all the elements here are familiar, but they're put together in a way that makes it engaging, that makes it interesting. We've got some great performances. And so if, if, if procedural is going to be the word that kind of defines what this story is, um, I would hate for anybody to think that that was being meant in a in a negative uh, sort of connotation or context. It's not. It this this is a story which takes all those familiar elements, blends them together, and does a terrific job of being able to turn out you know just a fantastic story. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that, and I definitely, yeah, I just really think that this is such a great synthesis of all of those elements. Uh, I think there's a couple characters I haven't touched on yet in talking about all the story because they're a little more peripheral. But another thing the story is really well is how every sort of peripheral character it feels very fleshed out and very interesting with their own sort of lives going on. Uh, first, I want to shout out uh, Maxine, who I talked a little bit about earlier, but she is, I think she's just a great character. It's a great sort of foil for Charlie where Charlie is a very sort of verbose person who tries to like get to know people very well and tries to be friendly, and Maxine just shuts her down in every corner, especially because Maxine is the one keeping her captive. And it's a nice to see, like, this person of a sort of uh, lower class in Doctor Who and then what their struggles would be like and to have this very sort of sympathetic idea where even though she's doing something wrong, she has regrets about it, but is sort of forced into this situation by sort of factors outside of her control. Oh, no, I agree. I think Maxine is a terrific character, actually. I'm, I'm sort of sorry I haven't really mentioned her yet, but... um. Yeah, no, she's 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 great, and like you say, like you, like, this is like a normal working class character, and we have that idea of of again, it's a sort of procedural thing, but that idea of that that life and reality and and just like normal day to day existence carries on, regardless of whether the doctor turns up to have an exciting adventure in the middle of it, you know, and she's she's like a perfect example of that, you know. Um, horizons don't extend beyond, you know, going to the local Indian takeaway or, or buying a packet of cigarettes or whatever it is. And and she's in a difficult situation where she knows what she's doing isn't right. She knows that she's she's doing something wrong, but she also really needs the money. And and that kind of that desperation that drives people to do something 
that they wouldn't necessarily want to do in any other circumstance is handled very lightly here but I think that's the right way to handle it with a character like Maxine we get something of her social background her personal background whatever it happens to be but it's not something that you know we don't get we don't stop for the and now here is this place social lesson poor people have difficult lives and we should respect them it's not it's not that kind of thing it's just that it's played very lightly so the details the sketched out little bits of her life feel authentic and it's it's a terrific performance as well it goes a long long way to kind of selling the story i think the fact that um sarah de, de fritas i hope i also got that right um she sounds young i don't know how old she was when she was recording this but she sounds young on the play like she's maybe in her late teens early 20s something like that and so that note of desperation that that kind of hint that she's maybe not taking the right path with her life whether it's because of social or political or personal reasons or whatever feels like it belongs to this character as well and it kind of reinforces um the, the sort of strengths of the character i think she's she's really really good and in, in, in what is again you know basically just a tie up the, the the you know the important character kind of role uh, yeah, I absolutely love Maxine in this. Yeah, I absolutely question everything you said. Uh, I also just want to shout out uh, Dr. Aldrich, who is another like fantastic character, like another fascinating one, a doctor who fixes up aliens just by sort of learning it on the job. And I, he could, like again, carry so much more story. And it's a little shame that this is his only appearance, but uh, what little we get, he's used so well. And it's another great performance by Lennox Greaves in this case. And yeah, I just find, like, again, I think this speaks to sort of the empathy of this play where everyone is given this sort of degree of being fleshed out and made seem interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's what the play does best. It's, 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 that, it's that Robert Holmes trick. It's we get small details that paint a much larger picture. And that's definitely not something that every writer is able to pull off. So, you know, I think full credit, full credit to Eddie Robson for being able to do that. This feels like a fully fleshed out world with fleshed out characters in them. And some of them are, are just local people and some of them are, are strange aliens from another world. And, and they all sort of seamlessly fit together into this environment. And that's that's a real achievement. We, we care about these people and we have enough details in their background to be able to understand what's going on with them. Yeah, again, without kind of reams and reams of, of, of exposition. That's that's a neat trick, and Eddie Robson does a really good job with it here. Well, I think that is the perfect spot to sort of leave our discussion on Condemned. Uh, yeah, a, sort of in summary, a great story, and uh, with two great introductions to the sort of big finish Doctor Who world. And uh, yeah, really excited to see where everything goes from here with the Sixth Doctor and Charlie. Fantastic. Good. Well, I think we can probably leave it there and move on to our mailbox. So, Kev, what do we have this week? Sure. We have two letters from John. Uh, First off, he has a clarifying point about Son of the Dragon. In his words, you criticize some of the editing in Son of the Dragon, feeling too much had been cut out. I thought you'd like to know that Nick Briggs has put his hand up for that. When he took over as exec, he wanted to rein in the ever-growing episode lengths and enforce a strict minute maximum duration. He has said that he regrets this, citing Son of the Dragon as a story that suffered the most as a result. His goal was good, but he should have been a bit more flexible. And, I mean, yeah, I agree. I think, uh, especially because a lot of Big Finish stories were sort of encroaching on like a two and a half hour runtime around that era, I think it's sort of good impulse to sort of rein in uh, episode lengths. On the other hand, I think part of being an editor is judgment. 
And uh, Sons of the Dragon was definitely a story that would have benefited from uh, a judgment call of, well, there's a lot of story going on here. You should be allowed to run a longer length. And it was not like we've been uniformly either. Longer stories are worse either. There are plenty of stories that run very long, but use their time wisely. So, yeah, I understand the frustration of I wanted to avoid longer stories and fan unrest about that. But, yeah, I think it's just sort of a call you have to make on whether a story deserves it or not. Yeah, it is. And I... I... I think it's interesting that he's held his hand up and sort of said that he made a uh, he made a mistake there, um, because, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a story which feels like it's it's had its wings clipped and and it doesn't necessarily undermine. It's still like Son of the Dragon is still a terrific story, um, but yeah, the impulse to to um, stop that self indulgence like self indulgence is the worst thing I think that that big finish can sort of lay claim to in terms of negative qualities. There there are times where it is just so phenomenally uh, self-indulgent. And the idea of trying to get that under control is, you know, so that we don't have another Zagreus. I know that's called, of course, that's going to be the touchstone story. But, you know, we don't need another Zagreus. And the idea of, of like, cutting back on this and, 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 uh, and, and trying to cut out the, the, the deadwood, get rid of the... The, the, the self-indulgence, the, 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 uh, I don't want to say laziness, that's too strong, but, you know, whatever. Um, but like you say, like when we covered um, Farewell Great Macedon, it's three and a half hours, and it's so good. So it's not a unit, there's no one universal answer to this. And okay, fine, uh, Nick Briggs would have been a, a fairly new editor at this point as far as Big Finish is concerned. So, um, yeah, not every not every call is, is correct. Not every not every judgment is going to absolutely nail it. But, uh but yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. Um, thank you, John. I, I appreciate the input. Yeah, John has another letter for us as well. Uh, another sort of more of a fun fact. Uh, in response to sort of Dan's suggestions from earlier about other ranges we should cover, specifically Torchwood, uh, he w- did some digging and went on the time scales, which is the sort of fan Doctor Who review compilation website, sort of like IMDb for uh, Doctor Who stories. And granted, I put in much stock in ratings for that website as I do for IMDb, but <laughs> like IMDb, it could also be a good guide if you're on the fence about whether to listen to something. And it's not insignificant that he gave these percentages among different ranges of stories that scored had an average audience score of 8 or more. So the 4th Doctor Adventure, 17%. 10th Doctor Adventures, 20%. Uh, monthly Range, 25%. Dire River Song, 39 and the Torchwood range, 67. Whoa. Which is real staggering. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that that is definitely as much endorsement as I need to check out Torchwood in on this podcast. I mean, maybe on my own. Because, I mean, yeah, I've heard so many good things about Torchwood. And yeah, it's, it's just tough on this podcast because, I mean, I already, like, I have a slate going up to big finish releases up through uh, 2008. And yeah, up through 2008, and it's like a lot. It would probably, uh, especially given news you'll hear in a little bit, cover us for like the rest of the year. So uh, yeah, it's so going in the Torchwood, it's again, uh, I don't know, maybe it's hard to sort of fit them in while still not leaving us too long without talking about Eighth Doctor Adventures, without talking about more Six and Charlie, without getting into also what the Fifth and Seventh Doctors are up to, without checking in on River Song and Iris Wild Time again. There is a lot to juggle, so I mean that's why I'm sort of reluctant to sort of dip in the torch and give us another thing to sort of another plate to spin, as it were. But 
you people are making compelling cases. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think it's I think it's really interesting. I what I I've only listened to maybe one or two um, Torchwood stories from Big Finish, and what I really hope more than anything else is that that Torchwood because. Like, I think you've you've I know that you've um, you've been on another podcast uh, debating Doctor Who talking about um, uh, Torchwood and um, I think you're maybe slightly more familiar with it than than I am and you know the big frustration of Torchwood has always been that there are some really like compelling ideas in there some interesting characters or whatever but just somehow with a few exceptions the TV show never quite managed to get a lot of that over the line. Obviously, people are going to say, well, you know, Children of Earth. Yeah, Children of Earth is fantastic. Nobody's going to question that. And there's a few episodes from the first and second seasons which are, are really strong as well. Okay, uh, Miracle Day, not so much. But basically, it, it, it feels like one of those classic cases of unfulfilled potential. There's a lot of really interesting ideas there, but they just don't quite get the chance to come to the surface. So for, for Torchwood to have such a you know, this vast kind of like 67% rating is is great. And I hope that means that that unfulfilled potential is going to be kind of like the the Mel or the Perry or the Nyssa of kind of, you know, uh, taking these characters and, and really investing them and making them fantastic again. Um, I hope that's what uh, Big Finish do for Torchwood. Yeah, of, of course, you're right. It's, it's There's so much material that we have to cover when it, when it comes to Big Finish. It's difficult to know when we'll try and squeeze this in. I'm absolutely down for covering some Torchwood at, at some point. I don't know when we're going to find the time to do that, but um, don't think that we're not interested in doing it. I think we absolutely are. It's just finding the space and the time when we're going to be able to get around to it. Right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I guess... And oh, John also says the Benny and Unbound Doctor stories are great too. Another recommendation I'm keeping in mind, but like I said, I I really want to like meet Lucy Miller, and there's plenty of other things I want to get to that are like sort of in the near future. I was doing the back catalog of Big Finish too, and so it is sort of hard to make those judgment calls. But yeah, I'm, it's definitely in consideration for sure. Absolutely, and don't you know it, when we ask for recommendations, we always. Uh take on board everything that you know we started doing river song because people were recommending them to them and i'm, I'm sure at some point we'll get around to this please don't stop making recommendations the fact that we might not get to them for six months or a year or whenever it is it doesn't in any way imply that we're not listening or that we're not interested but you know yeah big finish put out a lot of material so there's you know there's only so many podcasts you can manage to get done in in, in the space of a year and uh, but please do keep recommendations coming we love getting them even if we don't necessarily cover them in the show it, it can also be that it will lead us to listen to them just in our in our own lives and, and that's always great as well so yeah please keep the recommendations coming we're always listening and we, i promise we'll try and get right to torchwood at some point absolutely keep sending those recommendations and you can send us those recommendations at talking who to you at gmail.com you can also send us questions or other sort of things like i mean, questions about the stories we've covered questions about doctor who in general we'd love to sort of talk about doctor who and our other tastes too so please send those in you can also find us on Twitter at Talking Who to You. You can find myself on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you're using to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Now, at this point, we normally announce what we're doing next week. 
um, that's what's going to happen now. But with a slight caveat. So next week we're going to be doing our Season 12 roundup. So Season 12 will have finished probably a couple of weeks ago by the time that this posts. Um, and that means that we're going to be slightly behind the curve, but we really, really want to get stuck into this season and have the opportunity to talk about it. So next week, that means no big finish, but it does mean that we'll have the opportunity to discuss Jodie Whittaker's second season. However, we also have a little bit of an announcement. So, um, Kev, would you care to tell everybody what's happening now? So, yeah, as you can probably determine by the fact that the season holdout was coming a little late, they would like... Uh, what that means is that it's taking a while for us to arrange the next recording date. In fact, obviously, we haven't recorded it yet. This is being recorded end of February and actually going to the end of March, and that sort of ties into the bigger announcement. Uh, this is going to be a less regular podcast from now on. I'm taking the brunt of the blame for this. How dare I get a new job with a, with a lot more hours than I have time for podcasting? But, uh. I still really love this podcast. I know JG loves it too. We all love working, uh, talking with the fans over email and Twitter. And like, even if there were no fans, we love still doing it anyways because it's so much fun for us. It's So it is frustrating that we have to go to a sort of less regular schedule now. Episodes won't come up weekly with even like hiatuses just because there's no really way for us to sort of schedule it where we build buffers and sort of expend buffers. So it'll just sort of be played by ear, and hopefully I can arrange, like, do Twitter posts, so good excuse for all the Twitter, to give maybe warnings or announcements of when things will come out. Like I've said, right now we have uh, the 12th after wrap, the 12th season wrap, wrap schedule for next week, and but from that it could be one week, could be two, could be three weeks until that next episode after that, and it'll just be an announcement. Hopefully every time we record, and if we don't have a one set by the time we're recording one hopefully announced on our twitter uh, eventually once we get something recorded like i'm sorry to dis- be disappointing i feel bad about it but at the same time that's life and ultimately life has to come before podcast as much as some of us would wish it didn't <laughs> yeah if only this could be our full-time occupation what a glorious world that would be and i think um people who are sort of listening to the podcast regularly will know okay if you're on the you're on the west coast of america and i'm on the east coast of scotland so the time difference between us is the reason that this is um proving to be problematic in terms of our schedule if, if either of us lived in the same time zone or even even a relatively adjacent time zone it wouldn't be much of a problem but there's there's there, you know we have uh i want to say nine hours between us <laughs> so basically we have half a planet sitting in between us and uh, for the last kind of two and a half years since we started the podcast We've been able to kind of schedule stuff, um, and that's fine. Reality has just finally caught up with us. And, you know, if you're going to do a, a podcast about a, a time traveler, it, it's only logical that eventually time is going to catch up with you. We're going to still record. We're still going to keep doing it. Hopefully, maybe at some point in the future, our schedule will become a little bit more regular. But that doesn't mean that we won't still be doing it. We'll, we'll get episodes out as much as we possibly can. And, as always, we hope you're going to join us for them. But, until next time... Keep talking.